0: Today we're going to talk about replacing a traitor. I wonder if you know who the most infamous traitor there ever was. His story goes something like this. In 1775, when the Revolutionary War began, he was a merchant operating ships in the Atlantic Ocean. He joined the growing American army outside of Boston and distinguished himself by acts that demonstrated intelligence and bravery. In 1775, he captured Fort Ticonderoga. In 1776, he deployed defensive and delay tactics at the Battle of Valcour Island in Lake Champlain that gave American forces time to prepare New York's defenses. His performance in the Battle of Ridgefield in Connecticut prompted his promotion to Major General. He provided operations that provided the Americans with relief during the siege of Fort Stanwix and key actions during the pivotal 1775 Battles of Saratoga. He fought with distinction and General George Washington had given him his fullest trust and placed him in command at West Point in New York. He was repeatedly passed over for promotion by the Continental Congress because other officers were being credited with some of his work. He began to mingle with loyalist sympathizers and was planning on surrendering the fort to British forces... But the ploy was discovered in September of 1780, whereupon he fled to the British lines and eventually became a brigadier general in the British army. Who is this traitor? He's none other than Benedict Arnold. You hear that name is synonymous all the time, isn't it? If somebody betrays you, oh, you are a Benedict Arnold. His name, that's what it's become known for as being a traitor. It's amazing when you think about that that somebody's name can be so synonymous with betraying his own people all over the Amer- all over America. We know this if you've learned any kind of history. But if you learn anything from the Bible, you know that there's a more infamous traitor in the book. His name is Judas. In fact, his name has become synonymous with betrayal as well. In fact, there were several other people in the Bible named Judas, one of them, whom was actually the brother of Jesus, who actually changed his name from Judas to Jude and wrote the book of Jude. Why? Because the name Judas had become so synonymous with betrayal, they didn't want people to go, oh, were you the guy that betrayed Jesus? Betrayal. Betrayal at its worst. And when we come to this passage today, we understand that there was a need to replace the traitor. They had a few steps, a few things they needed to do. At this point, there's been 40 days going on of Jesus appearing before them. And now all of a sudden, he's gone. And they've got to take steps to begin the church and what God desired for it. So we're going to look at three scenes in replacing a traitor this morning. The first one is the strategy of the disciples. Look with me in verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 12 to 14. It says, "Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went in up into the upper room, and they were staying Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. There was a strategy that was being deployed here." You've got to understand, for 40 days, Jesus has appeared and disappeared. He's shown himself to them. He's shown them proof of who he is. And the question is, is, what have the disciples done for that 40 days? Well, they continued to hide. They continued to hide. They were afraid for their lives. In fact, we come to the last story, and it almost seems that right on the heels of the commission that Jesus gives to them, they've gone back to fishing. Seven of them went back fishing, and Jesus had to catch them fishing. And he caught them And they had caught absolutely nothing. And he tells them to throw their nets on the other side. And they bring in this tremendous catch. They had gone back to their regular lives for 40 days. They had not followed Jesus' instructions. And now all of a sudden Jesus is gone. What are they going to do? He's completely gone. He had just gone up into the clouds. And now they've got to structure. They've got to strategize. They've got to get prepared. Because Jesus is no longer there. So what are they going to do? What it says in verse 12, it says they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Why did they return to Jerusalem? Well, it's because that's what had been commanded them in Luke 24, 49. Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, they were told to wait for the promise of the power. They were told to wait in a specific place that God was going to come down upon that place at that time. That God was going to show up in power. And it was just 10 days away. So they go back to Jerusalem. It's interesting it says this note, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. If you don't know what a Sabbath day journey is, that's about 2,000 or so stadia. It's about 2,000 cubits. In other words, it's one half to three quarters of a mile. It was the furthest tent that could be from the tabernacle of God. So, they could walk a half a mile to three quarters of a mile. So, he's telling you, Mount Olivet to where they ended up in Jerusalem is the journey that they took. It was a very short distance, but they returned there for what reason? What well, says they entered? They went up into an upper room, and it lists the disciples here. A number of disciples, 11 in fact, not 12. Why? Because one had betrayed; one was no longer with him. So these eleven disciples are meeting, and it says they also are meeting with the women, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In fact, we find that eventually the number comes to be about hundred and twenty people meeting in this upper room. Now it's interesting because it says the brothers of Jesus were with him. Now a lot of people try to declare that there were no brothers of Jesus, but the Bible actually clearly depicts it in several scripture passages that there were several brothers of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 35, we see some of those brothers. James, Joseph, we also see Judas. He had four brothers that are mentioned in Matthew 13 and verse 55, and also in Mark 6.3. Mark 6.3 also tells us that he had many sisters. Now, these were half-brothers and half-sisters of Jesus because they were the children of Mary and Joseph. But they all met together. What's interesting about this is these guys didn't even believe, if you read in the Scriptures. John chapter 7 and verse 5 tells us they didn't even believe Jesus. How did it change all of a sudden? Well, we know that Jesus showed himself to James according to 1 Corinthians 15. So maybe it was after the resurrection, all of a sudden they believed he was who he said he was. But I want you to see what their strategy was. Is found in verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer. One accord. You get that. It says that a number of times in the book of Acts. In fact, that word is used 11 times in the book of Acts. Seven of them are positive and four of them are negative. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, it says this. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That very same chapter, chapter 2 and verse 46, it says, "...so continue daily with one accord in the temple." If that's not enough, Acts chapter 4, verse 24, "...when they began to pray, so when they had heard, they raised their voice to God with one accord." Over and over, Acts 5, 12, 8, 6, and 15, 25. But we also see it's not just in the book of Acts that they are like this. In the book of Romans, chapter 15 and verse 25, it says, But I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, or 15, 5. Wrong verse. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, chapters 1, Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, really tell us what it means to be of one accord. Look at this verse with me. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, that's just the first half. We're going to look at the rest of it in a second here. But I want you to see this verse. Paul is praying that the church would be like-minded. How are we to be like-minded? We're to think of the things that Jesus Christ taught. We ought to agree upon those things. We ought to agree that Jesus is the master of our hearts. We ought to agree that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. We ought to agree that there's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. We ought to agree that Jesus was perfect and never sinned, but he became the sin sacrifice for you and me. These are things that we ought to agree upon. And because we agree upon these things, we ought to have one mind. We ought to be of one love. What is that one love? That we spread the gospel message of Jesus Christ far and wide so that all people might know who Jesus Christ is. Man, if there's anything, the gospel of Jesus Christ ought to unify us. It ought to bring us together, not separate us. We ought to be able to work with other churches. Why? Because we have the same mandate to go out and win the lost and make disciples. The Bible makes it clear that we are to be of one mind. In fact, when Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, he said, Lord, make them one as you and I are one. Can I explain something to you? There's no greater oneness than the oneness between God the Father and God the Son. They are on the same page, have the same mind, have the same thoughts, have the same will, have the same love in everything they do. And the church should be the same. Every Christian should be the same. We should love one another, like-minded, of one love of one spirit, of one heart, of one desire. Our desire should be to win the world for Jesus Christ. Well, how does that happen with Philippians 2? We see we're supposed to have one mind, like-minded, one love, one accord. But look at this. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. There's the start. you got to consider others better than yourself. Man, that's hard, isn't it? in a world that's teaching you to get all you can, when you can, as much as you can, that you're number one, that you should always look out for yourself. The Bible tells you to esteem others better than yourself. You are to put others before yourself. Somebody uses the word, the acronym joy. It's Jesus, others, you. He goes on, he says it this way. He says, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. In other words, the way we are to be together is we are to put Jesus first, others second, ourselves last, and we are to think of Jesus Christ and what He desires for our lives and what He desires for us to do. That is when we will be of one accord. I'm here to tell you, I believe if the church gets to be where they're of one accord, that's when we'll see revival. I know it is. If you look at Pentecost, we read Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll get to that next week, When they are of one accord, God came down. One accord is essential to us being all that God wants us to be. But what were they one accord in? Look at this. They all continued with one accord in prayer. Can I tell you the most essential thing we can do as a church is pray. We get together every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. The men do. We also have a group of ladies that get together every Sunday morning. And you know what we do? We pray. I mean, we pray, we pray for God to move in this church. We've got people that will walk around here. They'll pray over every pew. They're praying over every chair. They're praying over every seat. They're praying over the altar. They're praying over the musicians. They're praying over the choir. They're praying over everything. Why? Because we know that without God, absolutely nothing happens in this church. Can I tell you something? I could preach till I'm blue in my face, screaming and yelling and going all crazy. And if God's not here, he, nothing will happen. God will not move. We need him, and that's why we pray. We seek his face, and then we do it with prayer. Why? Because the Bible tells us to. You know what's amazing is in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when the church finally got together, it says they continued steadfastly in prayer, in the apostles' doctrine, and in prayer. In Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 31, when the church was persecuted, they got together and they prayed. And they prayed for holy boldness, that God would not allow them to retreat. In fact, in Acts chapter 6, when the deacons were appointed, it was so that the disciples could focus on the preaching of the word and prayer. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us, chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. Prayer is essential to the church. Jesus Christ said, I will call my house a house of prayer, not a house of preaching. Not a house of singing, not a house of anything else, a house of prayer. We've got to get to praying. In fact, I challenge you, we're doing something this week. Never done anything like this before. I was praying about it yesterday, and I said, I told my wife, I said, hey, I need you to make me a little graphics and help me out with something. I said, we're going to do something called seven for seven. Seven for seven. Seven. For seven days, at seven o'clock at night, we're going to meet right here in the sanctuary. And we're going to pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit. For the next seven days. You say, well, why are you doing that? They had ten days before Pentecost came. We got seven days until we get to that sermon. So we're going to take seven days, seven o'clock at night. I invite you to come and be here. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be praying. You want to know why? Because I want to see Revival. I want to see God move. And guess what? We're going to start tonight. We're going to start tonight. You say, well, Brother John, don't we have church tonight? We do. Church is at 6 o'clock. And if I'm not so long-winded, we'll be done at 7. And we'll pray. And we'll pray. You want to know why? Because when the church begins to pray, God begins to move. I don't know if you remember growing up, they had these little things called cottage prayer meetings. Do y'all remember that? Before revival, you'd go to a different individual's house each week, and you'd go into that house for specifically for what? Well, for fellowship and food. But then you got down to praying, right? Fellowship and food, and then you got down to praying. And that's what it was. It was about getting serious with God, and they would get there, and they would pray, and they're like, God, we want revival. The truth is we need it. Let me tell you something. We've got corporations out there that are promoting wokeism. What we as a church need to be promoting is being awakened to the things of God. We need to be awakened in revival. We need God to wake us up and shake us and move in such a powerful way. And I'm here to tell you, I'm going to pray, and I hope you'll come and pray with me. The early church prayed, and man, when they prayed, it shook the house. I want to pray to where the church is shaken We've got to understand the desire and the need for prayer and the desire and the need for God to move in the church like He never has before. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of just coming to church. I want to see God move. And I want to see Him move not in just a little way, I want to see Him move in a mighty way that it can only be described as coming from Jesus Christ. But we got to get serious about prayer. They had a strategy. And they wanted to be a part. Now understand, for 40 days, they've been doing life their own way. For 10 days before Pentecost, they got serious. Can I tell you something? If you haven't been serious with God lately, now's the time. Now's the time. Why waste any more time? Let's get serious with God. Let's see God move. I'm here to tell you, this world is changing, and it's not changing for the better. We're seeing it happen where Disney is trying to train your children to where it's okay. And David talked about this. They are. They are trying to train your children that transgenderism is a good thing. Let me tell you something. That is straight from the pits of hell. You say, well, Brother John, you just don't know. I I do know. We had a young lady in our very first church. Young lady that I love that little girl, her name was Destiny. She's still Destiny to me. And for some reason, they got a part of this agenda, and she was a tomboy. Can I tell you something, young ladies? It's okay for you to be a tomboy. That doesn't make you a boy. Okay? It is okay. Just because you may act a little bit more manly than other girls, it's okay. And young boys, even if you act a little bit sissier than most boys, it's okay. You're still a boy. It happens. Somebody's going to write me about calling somebody a sissy, but that's okay. Let me tell you something. If we don't stand up, this world is going to take our children down a path we don't long for. And let me tell you something. They've already indoctrinated them in a lot of things. And I'm here to tell you the generation that's being raised up love socialism. And that's a scary thought. That's why we can't find workers anymore. I'm here to tell you if we don't stand up and I'm telling you if we don't pray... I'm telling you, Satan's going to take a hold of this country. Trust me, we can end up being just like Europe. That's where the gospel was, and I promise you, it's not there really much anymore. And it can happen in America, too, if we're not careful. There's a strategy the disciples had, and it was prayer, and we need to have the same strategy. Number two, we need to look at the suicide of a disciple. Look in verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples altogether. The number of names was about 120 and said, Isn't it amazing that God uses this guy, Peter? He just steps up. It says, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in his ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in, the, in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language a that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Peter steps up at this point. Now it's interesting because they've been expecting Peter to step up even though Peter failed. Isn't it amazing that you can fail and God will still use you? God is never done with you. In fact... Peter was even told by Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. He says he wants to sift you. Look at this, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Isn't it amazing? Jesus knew he was going to fail when you returned to me. When you return to me, Jesus knew that Peter would fail him. And yet he still looked at him as a foundation for the early church. And Peter steps up and says, "Men and brethren, we've got something we've got to do. We've got a hold, we've got to feel. Why? Because Scripture is being fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before. In amazing, Isaiah 55:11 tells us that God's word will not go out void. It will go out and accomplish exactly what God intends for it to accomplish. And they understood that. And that's why when Peter preached, he knew that God was going to fulfill what he had promised. Isn't it amazing that the promises that God fulfills here are found in the book of Psalms that he speaks of, that there would be a traitor. In fact, in the book of Psalms chapter 41 and verse 9, it says this, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. He's talking about Judas there. You're talking about David a thousand years before is writing about the betrayer in the Psalms, in the book of poetry, and he is declaring that there is going to be a familiar friend who is going to turn his back on the Messiah. If that's not enough, the book of Psalm chapter 55, verse 12 through 15. For it is not an enemy, or verse 14, it is not an enemy who approaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, My companion and my acquaintance, we took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. Can you imagine? Judas was a guy who walked with Jesus for three years. Three years. This same guy was one that Jesus sent out twice. He sent him out with a 12, and he sent him out with a 70. This guy went out and he helped blind people to see. He helped sick people to get well. He made lame people to walk. He was able to cast out demons. He was able to do some amazing things. And yet there he was, walking with Jesus. He was the treasurer, mind you, the one who took care of the money. And he would be the one to betray his friend. In fact, isn't it amazing in the upper room when Jesus tells him that one would betray him? Several of them say, is it me, is it me, is it me? Nobody looks at Judas and goes, I bet you it's that guy. Not one. Because he was numbered with them. He walked with them. He did the things that they did. Can I tell you something? There are some Judases in the church today. You've been walking among us, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You may even be serving in the church, but you don't have a relationship with Jesus In fact, Matthew 7, I think Judas is one of the very ones he was speaking to. Lord, didn't I cast out demons in your name? And didn't I heal people in your name? And didn't I do this? And he says, depart from me for I never knew you. Is he going to say that to you? Because you can look the part to man and you can walk the walk with man, but God knows the genuine side of your heart. I'm here to tell you today that there are going to be so many that stand before God one day and he's going to say, depart from me because they were just like Judas. You say, well, I've never betrayed the Lord. You betray him when you don't receive his precious gift that he died for you on the cross and paid for your sins and rose again that you might ever live for him. You betray him when you are not surrendered to him. You can claim him with your mouth, but if your walk and your life don't live it, stop speaking it. Stop! You are doing more damage for the cause of Christ because people are looking at you and they're saying, that's a hypocrite. No, that's not a hypocrite. That's a lost person claiming to be a Christian. Judas was one, for he was numbered with us. Jesus even prayed about this guy. Isn't that amazing? In the Gospel of John, chapter 6 and verse 64, here's what Jesus said. He said, but there are some of you who do not believe. And these are the guys that are following him. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Verse 70, 71. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, who it was who would betray him, being one of the twelve. You know, Jesus even prayed about him in John 17 and verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. I mean, Can you imagine this friend, this this supposed guy who loved Jesus. And he walks up to Jesus with the guards behind him. And of all things, he doesn't say, hey, look, the guy who I go up and shake his hand. Hey, look, the guy who I go up and hug. He says, the guy whom I kiss and he walks up to Jesus and he kisses him on the cheek and Jesus looks at him and says you betray me betrayed him with a kiss with a sign of intimacy and great friendship can you imagine as Jesus is being arrested the other disciples are are trying to save him but Judas is there because he has betrayed him as the scripture said he would. Verse 18, it says, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlongly he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, a that is, the field of blood. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people say, Well, wait a minute, didn't he hang himself? Well, if you flip over to Matthew 27, that's what it says. So a lot of people say, Oh, well, this, there's something that's got to be wrong about that, but I want you to listen to it for a second. Matthew 27 beginning verse 3. Then Judas' betrayer seeing that he had been condemned was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I want you to understand there is a huge difference between remorse and repentance. If you don't understand the difference, then you might want to figure that out. There are a lot of people that are remorseful because they got caught in their sin. There are others who are repentant because they know they've sinned. Verse 4 saying, I have sinned. By betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the piece of silver in the temple, departed, and went and hanged himself. Now, if you put Luke and Acts together, more than likely what happened is he goes out into a field and he does hang himself on a tree which overhangs a cliff. Eventually, the branch snaps or the rope snaps and he falls headlong, busts open his entrails on a rock down below the cliff. That's where the field Akil Dama comes from it's a tree overhanging a cliff amazing. If I feel both. Luke gives us one detail in his gospel and then Acts gives us another detail. Matthew gives us the detail, I'm sorry, and then Luke gives us the detail in Acts. But you think about that. But look, it says he purchased the field, but if you look at Matthew, it says this, but the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, "It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood." Hadn't y'all ever have you ever read that and found that to be humorous? They were willing to pay it out of the treasury, but then they couldn't put it back into the treasury. We can pay to kill somebody, but we can't accept money that was for killing somebody. So what do they do with the money? It says they, verse 7, and they consulted together and bought within the potter's field to bury strangers, and therefore the field has been called the field of blood to this day. You realize that that's a fulfillment of Scripture as well? In the book of Zechariah, Chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Listen to how, look at how amazing Scripture can be. 400 years, this is what was prophesied before. Verse 12. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me the, my wages, if not refrain. So they weighed out from my wages 30 pieces of silver. Look at verse 13. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely price, they settled me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord For the potter. Let me tell you something. That's not by accident. When God gives details in the Old Testament and they're fulfilled in the New Testament, that ought to wake us up. That ought to wake us up when we sit back and go, wow, you mean God had that kind of detail about his crucifixion? The answer is yes. And that means that, guess what? He's Lord. He's who he said he is. He is the fulfillment of everything that was promised in the Old Testament. Even right down to his betrayer betraying him. Verse 28 says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Both of those are from the book of Psalms. Psalm 69, 25 and Psalm 109, verse 8. But let's look at the selection of a disciple in verse 21 to 26. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression failed, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and a lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now I want you to understand this is because of fulfillment of what Jesus had spoken to them. In the book of Matthew chapter 19, Jesus had made a statement, and this is why it was important for there to be twelve apostles. Matthew 19, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who follow me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There had to be 12 disciples who would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. At this time there was 11, so they had to fulfill, they had to meet it. Now a lot of people say, oh, well, it was supposed to be Paul. Paul never thought of himself like that. Paul did call himself an apostle, but he wasn't one of the twelve. He was never intended to be one of the 12. He was an apostle to the Gentiles. These 12 were apostles to the people of Israel. Paul knew that his office was different from the other apostles. These 12 would sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. There was no need to think that they needed to wait on Paul because God didn't need to wait. He needed to fill the role, and Matthias was the guy. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, they threw lots. You say, well... Why would they throw lots? Well, Proverbs 16 tells us why they would throw lots. Proverbs 16 tells us that the lot is in the hand of the Lord. Look at this. The lot is cast into the lap, but' it's every decision is from the Lord. You realize that the high priest had lots inside of his breastplate, and they would cast them for the decisions of the Lord. God made that decision. Now you say, "Well wait, but didn't they have the Holy Spirit? Not yet, 10 more days. Ten more days. We don't need lots anymore because we got the Holy Spirit. But they cast them to make certain that they were finding the right person to fill the right role. And Matthias was the guy who was picked out because he had been with Jesus. There weren't that many left that had been with Jesus from the very beginning, that had seen him at his resurrection and had been commissioned by Jesus himself. And they came up with two names, and Matthias ended up being the one. You say, well, so what does that mean? simply means this, God was fulfilling Scripture again. Fulfilling Scripture again. You say, so, so what's the point in all this? So, so what that they replaced a traitor? Well, the question I simply have for you this morning is, what strategy are you following? What strategy are you following? What strategy are you a part of? You see, I, I'm here to tell you the disciples, they went about their daily lives like many people in the church do today for the 40 days. We can go about our daily lives oblivious to what God is wanting us to do. We can go about not being concerned about the things that are going on in the church, not being concerned about the things that are going on in the world, because we're just in our own little world. We're doing our own little thing, and and we're fine because we've got our ticket, and we're going to heaven. Can I tell you, that's not the right way to live. That's not the right way to live. We've got to have a strategy for reaching our community. We've got a message that needs to go out into all the world. And we got to have a strategy for that. Jesus already gave us the strategy in Acts 1.8. He's already given us the strategy. If we're not going to reach our Jerusalem, how can we dare go out and try to reach Judea and Samaria? If we're not going to reach right in there, right in our own neighborhood where God has placed us. Right there in our own jobs where God has given us a job. If we can't reach right into our own family that God has placed us in. If we can't reach into our Jerusalem, He's not going to ask you to do more. So why is this important? Because I'm hoping that it will change your prayer life. I'm hoping that it will change the way we pray as a church. I'm hoping that we will get so desperate for God that we'll begin to pray for two major things. One, we'll begin to pray that God will change our community and He will use us to do it. That God will begin to save souls like we've never seen before. That God will begin to come in and reach in just like the book of Acts, where people were saved every single day. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what God wants. I promise you that. But we have to do our part. We have to get out there and do the work God has called us to do. And the second way I pray that God will change our prayers is we begin to pray for revival like we've never prayed for it before. God, bring it whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. We've got to strategize and be prepared for what God is wanting to do. I'm here to tell you, When those disciples got serious and they began to pray, when Pentecost happened, can you imagine what that day was like? 3,000 people got saved. We got excited over two getting saved last week. 3,000 people got saved when they got serious about the movement of the Holy Spirit. You say, Well, Brother John, we can't fit 3,000 in here. That's just fine. Let them stream in. You say, well, if we can't fit them in here, how's it going to happen? Can I tell you what happened in the church one time? When they began to pray for a movement of the Holy Spirit to move in such a powerful way like Pentecost, something was going on in the church. The church service went on to about 5 o'clock that afternoon. Cars that were driving by just kept pulling in. And they would make the statement as they got into the vestibule area. They'd say, we don't even know why we're here. Just something just pulled us into the church. And the greeter that was out back said, well, just go on in. And from the moment they stepped in, they fell flat on their face and started getting right with God. I keep hearing this song over and over and over again on the radio called The Same God. He's still the same God that did what he did at Pentecost. And the same God that can do it right here if he wants to. If we want to get serious and see God move we better change our strategy in life and our strategy in the church because I want to see God move. I don't know about you. I'm ready.